0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 7 of Infraction. I'm Nadia and I'm Sally and today's case is a little bit more confusing um, than some of the other cases that we've covered but it's certainly a really interesting one. There are quite a few characters in this so I would suggest heading over to Instagram at infraction.thepod where you can see photos of all the people that we're going to talk about because I think it might help you keep up a little bit more and Sal has the images in front of her now too so she can keep up as well. Um, I'm going to first of all say that most of the information I got for this episode came from the documentary series Evil Genius. It's on Netflix. Um, Barbara Schroeder and Trey Bozzolieri, the directors of the documentary, did a really um, amazing job at the journalistic work to produce this documentary. So if you're fascinated by this case, then I would definitely recommend you go take a look at it. Because... Although I'm going to try and touch on all the main information you'll want to hear from this story, I won't be able to go into all the minor details too, because the documentary is like four hours long and we just certainly don't have time for that. Um, And of course, all the other sources I use will be in the description box as always. Alrighty, so I think with all that out of the way, I'll crack on with this absolutely bonkers story about a bank heist, a collar bomb, a pizza delivery guy, a scavenger hunt and one very intelligent narcissistic couple. I'm actually going to start this episode in the middle of all the bananas things that happen in this case to try and set the scene first. So we'll start on the 28th of August in 2003 in Erie, Pennsylvania, in the United States. And Erie is the name of the place in Pennsylvania. It's not a description of it. So at 2.28pm on August the 28th, 2003, a man holding what looked to be a walking cane walked into a PNC bank in Erie. He stood in line for a few seconds and then walked around the queue and handed one of the bank tellers a nine-page note. This note, in an incredibly roundabout way, told the bank teller that they should gather together all the bank employees who had access to the codes for the safes and that they needed to get together $250,000 and give it to the man. The man was 46-year-old Brian Wells, a pizza delivery guy from the local area. Brian Wells was wearing a large white t-shirt with the word Guess written on the front. And the only images I can find of this shirt come from CCTV footage inside the bank, so it isn't very clear, but I don't think this is a branded top. I think someone has literally written, guess, in big black marker pen on the front of the top. It was very obvious that Brian was wearing something big and bulky underneath his top, and when he handed the bank teller the note to demand the $250,000, he lifted his top to reveal a bomb strapped around his neck like a collar. The note Brian had given to one of the employees at the bank stated that they only had 15 minutes to gather the $250,000 or the bomb would go off. However, the bank teller told Brian that they would never be able to get together that much money in that short amount of time. Instead, they filled the bag with $8,000 out of the till and handed it to Brian. Brian took the bag, picked up a lollipop from the tub of lollies that was on the counter, popped the lolly in his mouth, and he sauntered out of the bank. Now, I say sauntered because from the CCTV footage from inside the bank, There is really no other way to describe it. He is incredibly nonchalant, and obviously it's very hard to tell these things from grainy CCTV footage, but I personally feel like he does look incredibly calm. He got in his car and drove a few metres to a McDonald's that was close to the bank. He got out of his car, picked up what seemed to be another note, got back into his car, and started driving again. The staff at the bank had obviously called the police, and therefore Brian did not get very far at all. After only a few minutes, the police pulled his car over. Brian entered a car park that was really essentially only a few miles away from the bank, and the police ordered him to get out of his vehicle. Brian complied. The police handcuffed him, and then, at Brian's mention of the bomb, they cut off his t-shirt. Like I said before, the bomb was literally strapped around his neck like a collar, and the police saw this and immediately retreated. There is footage of this, Um, Brian is sat on the ground with his legs crossed and his hands handcuffed behind his back. At this point, there are probably around 10 to 15 police officers all crouched behind their vehicles with their guns trained on Brian. Brian starts shouting to the police that he had been at work at the pizza shop and he had to deliver two pepperoni pizzas to a remote location. It was an unused radio tower. The police later confirmed with the pizza shop that this was true. Brian had had to do this remote delivery. They tried to track the phone call that had come in to make the pizza order, but it just led them to a petrol station payphone. So still sat on the floor in the car park with his hands handcuffed, Brian said that he had made the delivery to the unused radio tower, and when he got out the car to deliver the pizza, he had been jumped by two black men. He said that they put the collar bomb around his neck and told him he had to rob the bank. They gave him three different sets of notes, one for the bank teller, one for him, and one for the police. They then pulled out the pin from the bomb. He said that that had started a timer. He said the note for him had clues on it that he had to follow to essentially carry out a scavenger hunt to find more clues that would eventually lead him to the key that would unlock the collar bomb. At this point, lots of news vans had turned up and were broadcasting the scene live across America. Brian can be seen, still sitting there with his legs crossed and hands handcuffed, getting visibly more agitated. He had initially been quite calm, but at this point he's asking why none of the police are helping him get the bomb off. The bomb squad had been called, but because the police had shut down the surrounding roads due to the situation, the bomb squad were caught up in traffic. At this point, he's been sat on the ground for about 25 minutes. He shouted to the police, It's gonna go off, I'm not lying. But still, none of the officers went to him. All of a sudden, the ticking from the bomb turned into a beep. The beep was getting quicker and louder, and Brian's entire demeanour changed. He started shuffling himself backwards, he looked very panicked and scared, and then suddenly... Live on TV, the bomb went off. Brian Wells was blasted onto his back and died. Less than five minutes later, the bomb squad arrived on the scene. The bomb squad took to Brian's car to search for any other explosive devices, but they found none. They did, however, find the walking cane that he had been seen with in the bank, and it transpired that this was actually a shotgun that was fashioned to look like a cane. The gun was loaded, and the police later disclosed that the cane gun was actually functioning and could have shot someone had Brian used it. The police also found the notes that Brian had mentioned. These notes were pages and pages long, filled with drawings and so many barbaric words and instructions to complete the scavenger hunt where he was to find clues at each stage to get the key and instructions to disarm the bomb. The police at this point had literally no idea if Brian's story about being a hostage was true or not, or whether or not he was an accomplice to this bank heist, but they thought the answer might be in the scavenger hunt, so they took the clues and they started following them. At this point the police all split up so this next bit is happening all within the sort of few hours straight after Brian's death. The first team of officers started following the scavenger hunt clues. The first place they came to was a traffic light at an intersection. This traffic light had been drawn next to one of the clues and was actually pretty close to where they were. Um, They were quite certain that Brian had been on his way to this spot when the police had pulled him over. The police got out at the traffic lights and um, to the side of the road was a coffee jar inside this jar was another note which gave directions to the next location the police followed the instructions there and they saw a tree that had some orange tape attached to it the police walked over to the tree and just past the tree were fields driving along one of the fields was a blue minivan when the driver of the minivan saw the police cars he stopped the vehicle and sat there The police started approaching him, and the driver of the van immediately turned the vehicle around and drove away. Unfortunately, because of how far away the van was, the police lost the vehicle and the driver, but they were certain that he had been on his way to that spot where the clue had led them. Presumably at this point they thought that this man was also involved in the heist. Over at Brian's house, another team of police officers were searching his premises to see if they could find any evidence that linked him to the bomb or the bank heist. They didn't find anything. Back at the scene, the police officers there had a difficult decision to make. They needed to move Brian's body and they needed to remove the bomb in order to inspect it as they felt this was a solid piece of evidence that might give them a clue as to who the bomb maker had been. Unfortunately, they didn't know if the bomb was booby trapped or not and there was no way of knowing without inspecting it. They were worried that trying to remove the bomb would set off a trap that would cause a second explosion. So, shockingly, the police made the decision to decapitate Brian Wells in the car park in order to remove the bomb from his neck. Oh my god. The police officer who had given the order to remove Brian's head later said in an interview that the individuals who performed the decapitation did try to do so with as much respect as possible. But of course, unfortunately, this was incredibly difficult for Brian's family. And it also meant that they couldn't hold an open casket funeral for him, which is something Brian's mother really wanted to do. Oh, and I should actually also mention that Brian's family found out about his death by watching the news. Nobody had informed them of the situation that had happened, which, I mean, regardless of whether he was involved in this plot or not, And I must stress that his family have always stated they believe he had zero involvement. But either way, like, it's very harrowing that his family had to find out about his death in such an impersonal way by essentially watching his public execution on the news. During all this, another team of police officers had gone to that unused radio tower where Brian had gone to deliver the pizzas. And they found a fair bit of evidence there. They found tire impressions from Brian's vehicle in the sandy ground, an impression of his shoe in the ground. And next to that, there was obvious signs on the floor that there had been a scuffle or a struggle. Are you with me so far? Does that need recapping? No, that all makes sense. So, three days later, on the 31st of August 2003, Robert Panetti, a friend and co-worker of Brian's, was found dead in his home. There was no clear cause of death. The police were meant to have interviewed Robert about Brian's death, but Robert changed the date to the following Monday because he had a shift at the pizza shop and he didn't want to miss it. So unfortunately, because of Robert's untimely death, the police never did get to interview him about Brian's death. At this particular point in the investigation, the police were working with three theories. The first theory was that Brian Wells committed this robbery alone. And to me, this theory just seems unlikely because if Brian did this alone, he wouldn't strap a live bomb to his neck. He would have the keys to the bomb and he wouldn't undertake a scavenger hunt to try and find the instructions to disarm the bomb if he was the mastermind behind the entire thing. Um... The second theory was that Brian had been abducted, had the bomb put on him against his will, and was told to rob the bank and return, or that the bomb would go off. And the third theory was that Brian Wells and Robert Panetti, so that's the guy who they found dead in his home three days after the heist, the theory was they'd planned the robbery together, and that it had all gone horribly wrong, and that when Brian died, Robert either intentionally or unintentionally took some kind of overdose that resulted in his death as well. Later on in the investigation the autopsy results for Robert Panetti did conclude that he had died of an overdose. Of course it was unclear if it was accidental or suicidal but the police were working with a theory that maybe the drugs were administered by somebody else. The police in this investigation looked into a lot of individuals. They looked at other people who had worked at the pizza shop and also looked into prostitutes and pimps that Brian Wells had had involvement with. Um, I don't really think that we have time to go into a lot of detail about it here but For basically, everyone they looked into as to having some kind of involvement in this crime either had an alibi or were cleared as a suspect for other reasons. The police, now grasping at thin air for some kind of break in this case, released to the media the photos of the collar bomb and the cane shotgun, as well as an FBI profile of an individual they thought people might recognise as having involvement in this crime. The profile described, A handyman who probably collects or makes weapons of war. This individual is patient, deceptive and secretive. Being in control is important for him. Although the bomb itself was very unique, um, in the fact that it had this sort of collar-like function, the makeup of it was actually quite generic. It was just two pipe bombs and two kitchen timers. All over the bomb, words, symbols and notes warning of booby traps were scrawled. There was a plastic phone that said it would be set off by someone phoning the device, but this was actually fake. There was a second pin in the bomb that, if it had been pulled out, would actually have given Brian an extra hour. The police also released to the public a copy of notes that Brian had had on him on the day of the bank robbery. It looks like the note had been typed on a typewriter and then someone had traced these words with a pen and paper so handwriting analysis couldn't be used. The police decided that the scavenger hunt had just been a red herring. They tested out the route in the same conditions, so the same time of day, the same weather conditions, that kind of thing. And the police said that Brian would not have been able to finish the hunt in the allocated time before the bomb went off. When looking at this, I kind of thought, well, maybe one of the clues in one of the hiding places on the hunt might have been a clue to tell him to remove the second pin to give him an extra hour to complete the hunt, but I don't really know if I'm reading into it too much. Either way, the police concluded that, regardless of whether Brian Wells was involved in the bank heist or not, he was definitely the victim of murder. Where the bank was located was right on an interstate. If you went 20 minutes one way, you'd end up in Ohio, or 20 minutes the other way, you'd end up in New York. So the theory was, if you were going to rob this bank, the smartest thing to do would be to rob it, change vehicles at the interstate, drive into Ohio or New York, and you could just disappear. Um, This was obvious to almost everyone. And because of this, the police concluded that Brian's death was another motive in this crime. They didn't believe that the bomb had accidentally gone off. They believed it was always supposed to kill Brian. So actually thinking about this now, I'm assuming at this point their first theory that Brian was acting alone had gone out the window because they're speculating murder and not suicide. Does that make sense?
1: It does. But the only thing I'm not sure about here is that it doesn't sound like if Brian was a victim in this where there doesn't sound like there was any opportunity for the people to ever get the money off of him.
0: I think their point is when they when I think the whole point was to come back with the keys and the instructions for to disarm the bomb and that give them the money. I think that's what they're saying. I basically got from the documentary that the reason that they believed they'd set up this whole thing and put the bomb on him was because they didn't want him to rob the bank and then just run off with the money. they wanted him to come back, but the scavenger hunt and everything it makes no sense, and I'm not saying it makes sense because it really doesn't
1: no, and I just think that if they were going to meet Brian and disable the bomb and take the money etc um it doesn't sound like they'd really thought through the fact that actually the police were going to get to him much quicker as you say it sounds like there was a possible out but there's no evidence to suggest that was their plan and it seems completely logical to even myself who's never tried to plan robbing a bank mm-hmm. um that actually the police were to track you down incredibly quickly so mm-hmm. you'd have to somehow make contact with Brian even faster than that
0: Hmm. well then that's why they're working with this theory that his death was definitely a motive in this crime um but i absolutely agree with you i don't know how they thought they were going to get the money um it's it's like yeah it's completely bizarre <laughs> it just gets weirder and maybe like at the end we can like discuss our theories about it because at that point you might understand more why the people who did this did do it yeah absolutely okay So at this point, the police were seemingly at the point where they had nothing. They didn't have any suspects. They had no idea what had happened. They had no angle to explore. And then, out of nowhere, three weeks after the heist, the police receive a call from 59-year-old Bill Rothstein, who claimed that in the freezer in his garage, there was a dead body. Bill Rothstein claimed that his ex-fiancee, Marjorie D. Armstrong, had phoned him and told him that she needed help getting rid of a dead body and that he had obliged to help her... um, and that the police should come straight away. He gave them his address. It was 8645 Peach Street. And this address was literally the opposite end of the street to where Brian Wells had made that pizza delivery to that unused radio tower. So Sal, if I can give you some context for this. If you imagine where Nez lives, and then you imagine where Lucy lives, it's literally that close to each other. The site where Brian Wells went to deliver that pizza is literally within walking distance of Bill Rothstein's house. Okay. So Bill and Marjorie were both arrested and taken into custody. Bill and Marjorie had been an on and off couple for about 30 years. And Bill said that the reason that he'd helped Marjorie hide or uh, store the body was because he felt sorry for Marjorie. What? Yeah. <laughs> this guy gets weird.
1: I feel so sorry for you that you've got a dead body that you don't know what to do with. How terrible.
0: (laughs) Let me help you. So the body of the individual belonged to James Roden, Marjorie's boyfriend at the time. The autopsy determined that James had been killed with a shotgun and that he had died three weeks before the bank heist.
1: Sorry. So he feels sorry for her that she's got her boyfriend's dead body. Yeah. Hilarious, but okay, carry on.
0: Well, it's kind of weird. He says that he helped her because he felt sorry for her, but then the the mumblings basically in the, the in the police interviews they're both completely fucking delusional. So it's so hard to like even understand what the point was. But basically, Bill says Marjorie told me that I had to get a wood chipper and put the body through the wood chipper, and that was too much for me, and I couldn't do that. And um, now that's why I've called the police. But it makes no sense. Like I don't I don't understand it at all. Um, but Bill Rothstein is in custody because obviously the body's found in his house and Marjorie Deal Armstrong is in custody because Bill says that Marjorie had been the one who killed James. So in prison, Marjorie is adamant that Bill Rothstein was the one who killed James Roden. So that's the body in the freezer. Um, But the police don't take her word as gospel because like I said earlier, she's quite deranged. And also she's very aggressive and very violent towards the police. Um, Plus on further investigation, they realized that, Two of Marjorie's previous partners had also died. One had died in mysterious circumstances and the other one was shot to death whilst he slept. He was killed by Marjorie, a crime for which she did stand trial for, but she got off on self-defense for uh, claiming, I believe, battered woman syndrome or something like that. Um, So she's a very aggressive person and all of her boyfriends end up dead. Or she's just got a
1: terrible taste in men.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or, or like a mixture of all of that. <laughs> yeah. So the police also found out that Bill had some money issues. He had been living rent and mortgage free in his childhood home since his parents had passed away. And his siblings now wanted him to put the house up for sale so they could also benefit from the estate. Bill told his family that he had put the house on the market for $90,000, but in actual fact, he put it on the market for $250,000, despite being told by the real estate agent that this price was far too high. I mean, coincidence or not that it's the same figure that Brian Wells had asked for at the bank? Not sure. Okay, so
1: I guess what you're implying there is that the reason he has maybe put his house on the market for three times what its supposed market value is, is that, I don't know, we don't know why, but say he needs a quarter of a million, Uh, his first port of call is trying to sell his house for that price, and then hypothetically, maybe that's gone wrong, which has got him involved in a bank robbery.
0: Mm -hmm, Yeah, so I think that's a theory that the police are working with. They're basically looking at anyone who has... Um, any kind of money issues or anything like that and reasons for why people would want to um, undertake this bank heist essentially. Um, and yet, like you're saying, he's put his house on the market for far too much money. It implies that he's in money troubles and it didn't sell for that value because like you said, three times the price of what the real estate agent says it's going to go for. Um, and so they're looking at it to say, well, what kind of motives would, do these individuals have to rob a bank? Oh, Bill's in has money issues, that kind of thing.
1: Okay, yeah, I'm with you.
0: Moreover, to add more characters to this bloody story, Bill had a lodger, a man named Floyd Stockton, who had been living at that Peach Street home with Bill. He was actually a fugitive on the run from the police for a rape charge. The police, I'm going to say naively, released Bill from custody as they felt he had nothing to do with the murder of James Rodham. Um He... They said that he definitely had committed some crimes because he was attempting to help conceal the murder, but they told him he would not face prison time for that if he helped them with their investigation into Marjorie. So Bill and the police go to Marjorie's house, which is on Bacon Street. And I literally have no idea why all these streets are named after like food produce, but there you go. It's just another detail in this case, which makes it sound totally made up. But on Bacon Street at Marjorie's house, Bill makes a very, very big show of showing the investigators the crime scene. He shows where he poured hydrogen peroxide to get rid of the blood, and then he shows how he dragged James's body down the stairs and things like that. The police search around and they find a big bag of blood with a razor blade in it. And when asked about it, Bill says, that was I, that was I, in like a really jovial manner. He holds up his wrist and he says, stupid attempt at suicide. Did you get my note? Nobody got my note, huh? Did you get my note? It's three pages. Like, and this is literally how he is. He's so fricking jovial about everything. And then like another police officer says, like, yeah, we did get your note. We found it in your desk and he's looking really uncomfortable. And the note which Bill is referring to reads, police underlined. One, this has nothing to do with the Wells case. Two, the body in the freezer in the garage is Jim Roden. Three, I did not kill him nor participate in his death. Four, my apologies to those who cared. Four, or about me. I am sorry that I let them down. Five, I'm sorry to leave you this mess. Bill Rothstein. And when asked why he said that this had nothing to do with the Brian's Wells case, he's just like very casually remarks that he didn't want the police wasting their time trying to figure out if it was connected or not, which, I mean, come on. That, to me, that's just barbaric.
1: The thing I'm more struck by, did you say there was a bag of blood?
0: Yeah, 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 with a razor blade in it.
1: But who's who's trying to kill themselves and put... Putting all their blood in a bag.
0: I don't, literally have got no idea, but this is what I mean. He's so freaking narcissistic. Like he—he's so bizarre and he's so jovial. And he honestly thinks like he is the smartest guy in the room. And he says that in his police interview. He says in one of his police interviews, like, "I'm the smartest guy in this room." And the FBI agent is like, "There's only two of us in this room, and I'm fine. I'm happy to not be the smartest one." And Bill's like, "No, I'm the smartest one." And this is what I mean. Like going to this crime scene and literally saying. This is where I dragged a body down the stairs. This is where I poured hydrogen peroxide to try and cover up evidence of a murder. And he's just like, the police are just letting him get away with it. It's so weird.
1: Yeah, but I suppose all of those things, in theory, link to just hiding a body at this point, don't they? And cleaning up a crime scene. And I suppose, as you've Mm -hmm. said before, they've acknowledged he's committed those crimes. But I presume Mm -hmm. at this point, he's still blaming Marjorie for the rest of it, is he?
0: Yeah, he is. But he's saying like, so at this point, he's saying that this death of James Roden is totally unrelated to anything that happened to Brian Wells, despite the fact the police don't think that it's just a coincidence that where Brian Wells went to deliver that pizza was so close to Bill's house. Um, But obviously, there's so many dead bodies just keep turning up. Obviously, you had Brian Wells, and then you had Robert Panetti, and now you've got James Roden. And the police like think that there's a link, but they just can't find one at this point. Mm. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, And because they can't find any link, they possibly, too hastily, clear any connection between James Roden's death and Brian Wells' death. In January 2004, Marjorie is um, remanded in jail pending the trial for James Roden's murder. And Bill Rothstein was told that because of his cooperation with the police inquiry, he would only spend a couple of years in prison for the charges of abuse of a body. After this hearing, Marjorie said on camera when leaving court that Bill Rothstein should be charged with the murder of Brian Wells. The police did not follow this up. Kind of adding to this, the directors of the documentary Evil Genius um went to Bill Rothstein's house after this to talk to him and they film them walking up to his house. And in my notes, I've written there's a blue minivan outside his house. And I don't know if you can remember because I said it like 500 crazy facts ago, but there was that blue minivan coming over the fields towards the police when they were following those scavenger hunt clues on the day of Brian's wells death. Yep. And later on in the documentary, they also make that connection too that. Bill Rothstein has this blue minivan outside his house and they obviously think that that's linked to Brian Wells' death. Unfortunately, no answers were ever to come from Bill Rothstein. He had been secretly suffering terminal cancer for a while and was getting increasingly more ill. During his final days, one of the FBI agents went to see him in hospital. He said to Bill Rothstein, were you involved in the Brian Wells case? Don't take this with you. Cleanse your soul. And in the air with his finger, Bill drew the letter N and then drew the letter O and he died four days later. After Bill's death, Marjorie, from behind bars, openly admitted to killing James Roden. This was not the only confession she made, however. She wrote a letter to the police saying that she had information about the collar bomber Brian Wells. Her information was given to the police quite sporadically and on conditions of moving her to a different prison and helping her with legal aid and things like that, but essentially all of the information that she gave over these series of letters implicated Bill Rothstein as the mastermind behind the collar bomber bank heist. This forced the police to reopen their investigation into Bill Rothstein. A second look at all the evidence uncovered a diagram that was drawn on a piece of paper. This diagram had an arrow on it, and the arrow looked very similar to one of the arrows drawn on the actual bomb. This, to me, was like a really tenuous link. An arrow, in my opinion, really is just an arrow. I'm sure you and I, Sal, could both draw an arrow and it looked fairly identical.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And surely at this point they've got no evidence as to who drew it on either the diagram or the bomb.
0: So no, so the, the diagram was in Bill Rothstein's house. So it was his own workings of something else. But they're saying that something that they knew was um, Bill Rothstein's property. So this piece of paper that had this arrow written on it, they said that arrow looks very similar to the arrow that was drawn on the bomb. So they're linking it that way.
1: But it wasn't Marjorie, his girlfriend. So she could have easily drawn something in his home.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. There's no evidence that he drew it. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um. However, a second look at those ransom notes that Brian Wells had in his possession when he died uncovered um, some more evidence. So if you can remember, I said that originally they couldn't be matched by handwriting because the wording had been traced over printed wording. Mm-hmm. Well, on the back of the note, there was some very faint writing. It's kind of like an indent from other writings done in the in the notepad. And that writing matches the suicide note that Bill Rothstein wrote. At this point, the police had him. They absolutely 100% believed that Bill Rothstein um, had most definitely been involved in the Collar Bomber bank heist and that he had most definitely written the ransom note. Marjorie, of course, denied any involvement. America's Most Wanted, which is like a... Do you know what that is? It's like a program in America where they try to get information on killings and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, They put out an episode about this Collar Bomb bank heist and asked anyone to come forward who had any information A UPS driver phoned the tip line and said that he had seen Marjorie and Bill at the payphone at the petrol station on the day of the heist. The police later confirmed that this sighting was around the same time that the order had come into the pizza shop. And of course, um, the pizza order had come from the petrol station payphone. So they think that Bill and Marjorie went to this, I think it was like a Shell petrol station, made this phone call to the pizza shop and then went back to the unused radio tower to wait for the pizza delivery driver to turn up. Marjorie's motives to commit this crime became clearer and clearer to the police. Kind of like with with Bill Rothstein, they realised that she was having some money issues. She'd actually written a letter to that PNC bank in Erie, demanding them to give her money um, that she said was owed to her by them. Her mother had died and left her some money, but the PNC bank supposedly released these funds to Marjorie's father, and so Marjorie got nothing. After this revelation, a man called Ken Barnes was interviewed by the police. He was a drug dealer in the Erie area and allegedly was a loose acquaintance of Brian Wells because Brian used to buy drugs off him and then use Ken's house to sleep with prostitutes, Um, namely one prostitute in particular whose name is Jessica Hoopsick and just kind of keep her in the back of your head because we're going to come back to her later. So the police interviewed crack dealer Ken Barnes and he said that Marjorie has solicited him to kill her father. Marjorie said that she would pay Ken $250,000 to kill her father. So obviously there it is again, that magical two hundred and fifty dollars figure. Marjorie said that this was a lie and she actually very brazenly said, I've killed two boyfriends. If I needed to kill someone, don't you think I'd just do it? Um, which, I mean, she has got a point. Yeah. <laughs> Can't argue with that. <laughs> um, but Marjorie changed her story again and said that Ken Barnes and Bill Rothstein had worked on the heist together and that she had nothing to do with it. She said all that she'd done was supply Bill Rothstein with two kitchen timers. This was really important information for the police because they'd never released that information about the kitchen timers to the public, so they knew that she definitely had some involvement. On the 9th of December 2005, three years after the heist, Ken Barnes confessed to what had happened on that day of the heist. Right, so listen carefully. So this is where all the people in this story come back together, um, and we're finally going to understand what might have happened. So, Ken said that the day before the heist, there was a meeting at Bill Rothstein's house to discuss the plans for robbing the bank. He said in attendance at the meeting was Marjorie Deal Armstrong, Bill Rothstein, Robert Panetti, that second pizza delivery guy, James Roden, who was the man in the freezer, Floyd Stockton, that convicted rapist who was on the run who'd been living with Bill, Ken Barnes himself, and then also Brian Wells. Ken's role in the heist, he said, was to be the lookout, on August the 28th, 2003, Marjorie went to Ken's house and said, today is the day. Ken said, where's James? He's meant to be our getaway driver. And Marjorie said, he's sick in bed with the flu. So we obviously know at this point that he was actually dead because he'd, he'd been killed three weeks before the heist. And it turns out that Marjorie had shot him because he had backed out of the heist and he said he was going to go to the police and reveal the plan. Bill Rothstein, Ken Barnes and Marjorie went to the Shell petrol station to make the call to order the pizza. And then they went to the tower site to wait for the pizza to be delivered. Ken said that Brian turned up, put the pizzas on the top of his car, and that everyone started digging in and eating, and Brian was stood there waiting to be paid for the pizza. At this point, Floyd Stockton came out from behind a building holding the collar bomb. Brian looked terrified and started running. Ken Barnes punched Brian in the face and said, quit being a pussy. Bill Rothstein pulled out a gun, fired in the air, and then Marjorie and Bill Rothstein held Brian Wells on the ground, whilst Floyd strapped the bomb around Brian's neck. So you said before
1: that Brian Wells had been at the original meeting about the bank heist. This is what Ken Barnes is saying, yeah. So what we should assume here, if that's true then, is that he was aware of the bank heist. What he wasn't aware of was that he was going to have to wear a collar bomb during it.
0: Yeah, I think think that is what we can take from this bit, is that, yes, it seems like he's either getting cold feet from committing this bank heist or he is, yeah, nervous about the fact that he's got to put a collar bomb on. But, yeah, so... (laughs) It's kind of hard without knowing everything that happened. But Marjorie handed Brian the ransom notes and said, take this to the bank and get $250,000. She said, if you get caught, tell them some black guys jumped you so you'll take the heat off us. They then handed him the cane shotgun and then Marjorie pulled the white t-shirt with guess written on it over Brian's head to cover the bomb. Ken, Bill, and Marjorie all left to go sit in a car park opposite the PNC bank and watch through binoculars as Brian Wells robbed the bank. Ken said that everyone thought the bomb was fake. So, Floyd, Ken, and maybe Brian thought that the bomb was fake. We don't know if Brian knew anything about the bomb, though, which kind of goes back to what you were just saying, which might have explained why he was getting nervous or whatever and tried to start running away. Ken said that everyone thought the bomb was fake, it was just meant to scare the bank staff into giving them the money. Ken then said that Marjorie and Bill made the bomb real and that Brian Wells had no idea it was going to blow up, but that Brian was definitely involved in the plot. From prison, Floyd Stockton, who was incarcerated for that rape conviction I mentioned previously, supported Ken's story. He said that after he strapped what he thought was a fake bomb to Brian's neck, he ran away because he felt too much heat was going to be on the case, and after all, he was a fugitive on the run. Both men said that they didn't know who the mastermind behind the whole plot was and whether it was Marjorie or Bill. And both of them said that they had no clue what Robert Panetti, the second pizza guy's involvement was in the heist. So if you can remember, he had been at the meeting and then he turned up dead four days after the meeting, three days after the bank heist, but no one knows what his involvement was or if there was any involvement between him. Mm -hmm. But assuming because he was at the meeting, then he definitely did have some kind of involvement. On the 1st of November 2010, seven years after the heist, Marjorie Deal Armstrong was convicted of conspiring to commit armed robbery and aiding and abetting an armed robbery um, involving a death and aiding and abetting the use of a destructive device in a crime of violence in the collar bomb bank heist. Ken Barnes pled guilty to his charges in relation to this crime and was sentenced to 45 years in prison, but I believe this sentence was then halved to 22 and a half years. Floyd Stockton had scored an absolutely wild deal with prosecutors and would face no charges or conviction for his involvement with the case because he assisted with inquiries. Bill Rothstein was listed as a co-conspirator and I believe he received a posthumous conviction for his involvement in this case. Robert Panetti was not listed as a co-conspirator and to this day his involvement in the crime is unclear. Brian Wells has also been listed as a co-conspirator to the bank heist and armed robbery. Whether he's been posthumously convicted is unclear to me. Um, I'm sure that somewhere I saw that it was written, but I can't find it in any of my notes. And I can't find it on Google either because I'm, I'm blocked from a lot of websites because I'm not in America. So maybe the information's out there. Um, but either way, he has been listed as a co-conspirator. After Marjorie's conviction to do with this crime, she did say that Brian Wells was an accomplice. Regardless of whether he was convicted or not, he is still listed as a co-conspirator, but quite shockingly, nobody has ever been charged with the public execution of Brian Wells. Nobody ever faced any charges for his death. And this is the final bit of information for you. Uh, Earlier, I asked you to keep Jessica Hoopsick in the back of your mind. She was the prostitute that Brian Wells regularly met up with. In an interview that Jessica did with the directors of Evil Genius, the documentary, Jessica said that Brian was innocent. She said that she went to Ken's house, and Ken had some friends, in inverted Commons, and they were planning a bank robbery. They wanted Jessica to give them a name for someone who might be a good gopher, someone who they could intimidate into robbing the bank. They said they would pay Jessica $5,000 if she provided them with a name. Jessica said she was then high for three days, but needed some more drugs, so she phoned Ken and struck a deal with him that if she gave him the name of someone she knew, he would give her some crack. Jessica said, his name is Brian Wells. He's a pushover. You can use him. Jessica then set it up to take Brian round the following week to meet them all, uh, without telling him what they were meeting for. Marjorie gave Jessica $1,500 for this information. With regards to the pre-robbery meeting, Jessica does not think that Brian was there that day. She said that she had been with him all day before he went to work and doesn't think it was possible for him to have gone to this meeting in between seeing her and going to work. Jessica strenuously states that Brian had nothing to do with the planning and had no idea about the heist. A few months after the heist, Jessica Hoopsick had a baby, and she believes Brian Wells is the baby's father. The producers of Evil Genius say that the photos of the child look a lot like Brian Wells. So in your opinion then,
1: I mean the evidence seems quite mixed, do you think Brian Wells was involved here?
0: It's quite difficult for me, I think, to be honest, that every single person in this case is lying. And I think everyone who knew the truth is actually now dead. So Marjorie died in prison from cancer in 2017. So Bill, Marjorie and Brian, all the people with the answers are gone. Uh, Brian is listed as a co-conspirator, right? Because of this claim about the meeting of the day before the heist. This information came from Ken Barnes, but an independent eyewitness also puts Brian at Bill Rothstein's house the day before the heist because apparently Brian had pulled out of um, Bill's house in his car um, and that he'd almost hit this eyewitness. But for me, this doesn't really prove anything because I think he could quite easily have just been delivering a pizza to Bill or this eyewitness might be mistaken because, I mean, there was so much news coverage on this case. It's not a totally wild theory that he just mistook a guy with glasses to be Brian Wells because he'd seen his face everywhere. Additionally, Marjorie testified that Brian was involved in the plot, but she definitely would say that. And my theory about this whole pre, um, pre-robbery pre meeting is that everyone who was involved wants Brian Wells to be also viewed to be involved because they then can't get the death penalty for his death if they were to be charged with it. If he was a co-conspirator in the crime, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that I'm just thinking off the top of my head is that realistically what would be Jessica's reason to lie. Right,
0: okay, so this is also my theory. She is essentially saying, like, the person who I think is the dad of my child, um, like, I, I set him up to do this bank robbery and then that resulted in his death. And to me, she has no reason to make it up. So, and also to do no. it so long after this investigation, for all intents and purposes, it was a solved investigation. They listed him as a co-conspirator. She didn't have to come out and out herself in this confession that really paints her in a very bad light there is no way that she comes off well from this she is saying that I set him up for this and he died because of it and I have his kid so yes I I don't think that he's involved because of that then the thing I can't get out of my mind is how calm Brian is inside the bank like on all the CCTV footage he just saunters around he's sucking that lollipop he's very calm and if someone had just jumped you and put a bomb round your neck and you had no idea that it was going to happen you would definitely not be that calm unless you genuinely thought it was a fake bomb and maybe you would know that it was fake because you'd been involved in the in the heist um and also on top of that when he's on the floor in the car park when he's handcuffed he says he he says to the police two guy two black guys jumped me and that's what marjorie told him to say supposedly in ken's confession and i think if you Genuinely got jumped by Floyd Stockton, Ken Barnes, Marjorie, Bill, all the rest of them, and they they jumped you and they put this bomb around your neck. Why would you sit on the floor and say, oh two two black guys did it"? To me, that doesn't because make you're sense.
1: Terrified. Well, I kind of can reason with that though because I think uh, you have to think when he's walking into that bank, etc. His biggest fear, whether he's showing it or not, and. I mean this is really kind of just guessing mm-hmm. but I suppose the state of his body means it was probably quite hard to do any toxicology reports whether he'd I don't know taken anything to help to or been given anything to keep him calm really? Um, but that moment when he's in the car park and they ask him what happened um, at, as far as he's concerned he's probably realising this really is a real bomb and in his mind there's three people who are controlling it he's got a bomb around his neck he probably doesn't know yeah. what kind of level of you know, can they hear what he's saying, etc.? I just think maybe in that moment, his mind is on there's these three people who control my life right now. Um, actually, this is not going to be a time where I throw them under a bus.
0: Oh my god, that's actually, you know, I hadn't thought of that. I actually think that makes a lot of sense, yeah, because he could also see that this is being broadcast on the telly, so yeah, I guess he's not going to sit in a car park and say these are the three people that did it in case that they do set the bomb off. That's actually an incredibly Smart theory, because there was that phone attached to the bomb, which we obviously we know now was fake, but he wasn't to know that someone could detonate that remotely.
1: Absolutely. Also, the
0: other thing for me is that he, in Ken Barnes' confession, he says, um, Brian Wells put the pizzas on top of the car and then was waiting to get paid. Like, if he was part of the heist, why the fuck would he be waiting there to get paid for the pizza? That makes no sense.
1: Yeah, and, uh, and I just think as well, he seems... Slightly the odd one out in all of mm-hmm. this, doesn't he? He doesn't seem to have quite such a jagged past. There doesn't seem so much of a history there. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he had been involved, I mean, you you can't possibly know, but if he had been involved and if I was him, I'd feel quite out of my depth working with those people. Yeah. And I think similar to the other person who was later shot, who got cold feet, you know, I suspect he maybe went through a similar thought process. Actually, these are some quite mm-hmm. serious people. I'm really not equipped to be involved in this. Um, I mean, by all means this still sounds like the most ridiculous plan for a robbery. I still don't understand how they ever thought they were gonna get the money. <laughs> um but Oh uh, yeah,
0: I don't think it's I don't think it's about the money. Like I think that it is Bill Rothstein... I reckon he's the mastermind behind it. I think Marjorie's just going along with it because she gets some, some kind of like kick from it. But I think largely this, this whole thing was just a pla- like a plan to prove how smart Bill Rothstein was. And I mean, it fricking worked. Like this was broadcast around every single country. Like it was breaking news in every single country. And the whole world was just watching the police kind of run around chasing their own tails, no idea what was happening. They had Bill Rothstein in custody and he didn't even get so much as looked at for the crime, um, even when the evidence was quite clearly pointing to him. I think it was, he knew he was going to die anyway, I think, because obviously he had terminal cancer and he, I think... My view is he knew he was going to die and he just wanted to do one last kind of like fuck you to the world and just show everyone how bloody smart he was. And it works. Like, I think it is just genuine, just complete and utter narcissism that drove this. There is no way they were going to get the money from it.
1: So I would completely agree with you there if just before his death, he'd confessed. But it strikes me as that as far as he knows, this crime was never attributed to him. He died being... Um, an evil woman's accomplice which is often kind of viewed as you know there's no notoriety to come with that is there the only reason now that we're here talking about him is because marjorie tried to pin the whole thing on him so i can understand that he might think in a delusional way that he wanted to do this big grand plan and actually that would kind of make sense because if he was yeah slightly delusional as we keep saying then maybe actually it's feasible that it was a bit flawed in the sense that he was never really going to get the money you know maybe he didn't really think about that or maybe like you say he didn't care um, but it just strikes me as odd that he then never claimed that this was his work because then I don't see really people that do things like this often what they really want is fame and attention don't they and it seems to me that he never got that in his lifetime and couldn't possibly really have known that Marjorie would pin it all on him
0: yeah, and I, I totally understand what you're saying. I guess, from my point of view, I don't think that was his motive. Like, I think it was just for himself. I think it was so he he knew that he was, like, so intelligent and all the rest of it. I don't necessarily think that he ever wanted the notoriety from it. It just kind of came from it. Or maybe he did, I don't know. I do know what you're saying, though. Like, you, I'm surprised that he, he didn't confess to it because... Um, Like then no one knew that it was him and he wasn't to know that anyone was going to know that it was him.
1: And if he was if he wasn't dying, then you'd think, okay, maybe you wanted to prove it to yourself that Mm -hmm. you could do this. You didn't want to take the fool for it, which is why you have pinned it on every man and their dog. But actually, the fact he was dying, it's hard to imagine a reason why he wouldn't just admit to it being him. Unless, of course, that was part of it. um, Him wanting to prove he Mm -hmm. could get away with it as such. But even then, it seems strange to let the whole thing bank on. Uh, murdering Marjorie to not give up the ghost and tell everyone that actually it was him you'd think he might have made it a little bit more sure
0: no that's what that's what I can't understand yeah I that's what I really can't understand is like what I don't understand the whole confession of the James Roden thing like the body in the freezer I don't know if that was just like another part of trying to prove that he was smarter than the police or what like he knew that he wouldn't get caught um, or he he knew that he wouldn't be convicted of it or maybe he just didn't care because he knew he was dying I really don't know Um I, I honestly like and this is this is a thing so many people have so many theories about this um and I think it'd be really interesting to hear what the listeners have to think um Uh no
1: I just think this yeah I think it was a really interesting case um it's definitely one I can't wait to go away and, and read a little bit more on and hear some of those theories because absolutely there was a lot of different angles I think you can look at this from isn't there from each kind of character arc um, it almost sounds hmm. like a movie plot, doesn't
0: it? <laughs> well, no, exactly, and I think that's what's like that's what everyone said in this case that like, you couldn't even write this like if someone tried to write this as a story, they'd be kind of laughed out of the publisher's office because it would just be like so bizarre, like what a stupid plot like there's no there isn't like real no reason for it um, but I mean, if you want to go check out Evil Genius, I definitely would advise it There's a lot of things in there that I couldn't include in this episode because it would have just made it way too long and probably way more confusing. And it is difficult, obviously, when you can't see visual things and you can't put faces to names and all that kind of thing. So definitely if you enjoyed this, go check it out. Um, There is quite a graphic bit though where they do show Brian's death. So I would just warn people of that because I mean, for me, that was quite hard to watch. Um, But yeah, in general, like I think it would be so interesting to hear what other people think. So head over to Instagram at infraction.thepod and comment on the photos and just let us know what your theories are behind this and whether or not you think he was a co conspirator or whether or not you think this whole thing was set up just to murder him and just to run a mock of sort of like the criminal justice system and that kind of thing. Like, we'd be so interested to know what everyone else thinks about this, wouldn't we? The only other thing
1: I'm just thinking so, why did it take everyone else so long to come forward? I think people like Kems and Jessica, et cetera, why didn't they come forward? I don't know, as soon as Bill and Marjorie had been apprehended. Um,
0: I don't know why. I don't know why Ken didn't. I think that mainly because he was just it's kind of the area where lots of crime and things like that happen. I think Ken knew that he would therefore be put in prison. Like obviously he wasn't just saying, Oh, I know about this plot. He was involved in it, and obviously he did get, what, forty-five years originally. He was convicted of forty-five years. So that's a big thing to come forward and admit. Um, Jessica refused to speak to anyone about this for years. And I mean, like, literally years. Um, she came forward, I think, because if if you watch the documentary, you'll see, like, she gets put in prison for some petty crime. She's put in prison with Marjorie. And Marjorie threatens her so much and puts so much fear in her not to come forward and say what's been happening. Okay. Um, That I think then she turns around and she says, "Lo, I kind of like owe this to Brian to just come forward and tell the truth. Because I mean, like we mentioned, her confession means literally like it doesn't put her in a good light at all. I think she did it to just give a middle finger to Marjorie because now Jessica's out of prison, but Marjorie's still in prison. Maybe she felt a little bit safer coming forward now knowing that she wasn't in the same place that Marjorie was.
1: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: So yeah, lots of theories, lots of questions. Um, Head over to Instagram and let us know what your thoughts are um next week we're going to move away from death and destruction for something a bit lighter it's still incredibly interesting we're going to be looking at a man dubbed the most hated man on the internet um so hopefully we'll see you next week for that one thank you so much for joining us thank you sal thank you nad (laughs) thanks girls right see you next week (laughs) bye bye